Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. This episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while in motion with Stitcher. It's a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher right now, you have a chance to win some free money. Downloading is quick and easy. It takes just a few seconds. You just go to Stitcher.com or you can find it in the App Store. You download it. And then when you register in the promo code box, enter other people. When you do that, you're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of Other People will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to a ton of other amazing content, always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go download it at stitcher.com free of charge or do it in the App Store. It's available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer, whatever you got. And don't forget to enter the promo code Other People when you sign up. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, everybody, right. here we go again. This is it. This is Other People. This is currently unfolding. This is portable and free of charge. Thank you for being here. Thank you for tuning in, as always. My name is Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. There's a lot going on. It's been hectic around here lately, uh, even more so than usual. I've been traveling. I was in the Midwest last weekend for a bit of a family get-together. I was in Indiana. I was in the corn visiting uh, my sisters on their birthday. They share a birthday, actually. My older sister, Lauren, just turned 40. My younger sister, Erin, just turned 33, so there was that, and uh, I got to do some things while I was there. I got to ride a bike around my old hometown. Uh, I got got a little nostalgic, you know. I went to my old home uh, there in Indiana, my childhood home, which my family uh, has not lived in for nearly 20 years. We all moved out. We all moved away, Uh, and then otherwise, the traveling itself was a bit of an issue. It was a bit of an ordeal. On the way there, uh, we had to connect in Denver And then we got rerouted to Chicago due to a thunderstorm, some severe weather. Uh, So we were in Chicago, and then we had to drive to Indianapolis. Uh, It was like planes, trains, and automobiles. And then on the way back to L.A., uh, there was a three-hour-plus delay at uh, the Denver airport on our way home. And so I was trying to keep my daughter entertained, if you can imagine this. She's two years old, 
and we did a lot of running on moving walkways, uh, those conveyor belt things. Lots of that. Hours of that. And uh, speaking of travel, speaking of air travel, uh, just moments ago, I booked a trip to Israel. Uh, I've been talking about this a little bit on the program uh, over the past few months. And uh, the novel that I'm working on, it involves Israel. And I've never been there. I'm not Jewish. I'm not a uh, Palestinian. Is that how you say that? I'm not Palestinian. And I don't, I really don't know much about Israel or Israeli culture uh, or that part of the world, to be honest with you, beyond uh, what little I've gleaned from uh, the news and from uh, books and magazine articles here and there and uh, from friends of mine uh, who have been there or who are Jewish or whatever. So I figure I should go there. I figure I should experience it uh, a little bit if I'm going to write about it. And so I have booked a four and a half day trip to Israel in early September four days, a very compressed uh, time frame, considering that the flight from LA to Tel Aviv lasts 15 hours. So that is now happening. Uh, I'm going to be flying coach uh, for 15 hours. I'm going to go to Israel and, excuse me, I'm going to walk around. I'm going to check out uh, Tel Aviv. I'm going to go to the Holy Land. I'm going to see where Christ was crucified. I'm going to go to the Wailing Wall. I'm going to do as much as I can in four days by myself wandering Israel. So uh, I'm looking forward to it. The only problem uh, is that I just realized that my passport has expired. And uh, so I spent earlier today some frantic uh, hours uh, trying to get it, the whole thing situated. I had to, you know, uh, get my uh, passport photos taken and I had to overnight my expired passport to the uh, State Department in Philadelphia or some State Department office. And I had to pay for an expedited renewal and all that stuff. And so hopefully, and there's no guarantee apparently, but hopefully uh, my new passport will arrive prior to my day of departure because the ticket I bought is non-refundable. So uh, there's that. And, uh, you know, I'm going to try to do some sort of uh, some sort of recording on the ground in Israel, uh, possibly. I can't make any promises. I don't know. Uh, I might try to buy some sort of gear, some sort of portable recording gear, and maybe I'll do a show from there. Uh, I don't know, but it's on my mind. So... Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, uh, my guest today is Paul Statongi. Uh, he is the author of a novel called Red Weather, which came out a few years ago, and his latest novel, Evil Knievel Days, is now available from Crown Books. It's getting starred reviews, it is generating buzz. 
and it is very nice to have Pauls here on the program. So let's get to it. This is the show. Uh, this is the conversation. This is what you've been waiting for, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, here it is. So I am sitting in a uh, rented room. I went on to Airbnb. Have you seen Airbnb.com? Yeah, no, I have a friend who does this. I, in fact, I might have even talked about this uh, with somebody on this program before, but it's like, uh, well, you can describe it, but I mean, you basically are like like staying with people, correct? Yeah. So basically, you can stay in their house, or sometimes they have, uh, like for instance, the one here in Boise, Idaho, where I am, is a garage that has a room built on top of it, and it has like basically a, it's like a little studio apartment. It has a bed and a mini fridge and a you know shower and a sink and and a couch. This one also has a couch an air conditioner and a, what appears to be a wood burning stove. <laughs> so, um, you know, it's, uh, it's very nice. Uh, and it's 50 bucks. So, you know, that's, that's a good thing. No, that's crazy. And, you know, I was reading something about how like the hotel industry was, you know, starting to feel the heat from all this because so many people are using, uh, that service instead of like staying at like the, the super eight or whatever it is. And, um, the only thing that I wonder about, cause I've never done this is like, do you ever have any trepidation? Like, are you ever like oh. driving up to the house going, is this going to be the end of me? Like, you know, like, of course. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm totally, you know, is it, is this the ax murderer and, and, uh, you know, his house, but, um, come stay at the ax murderer's house. <laughs> yeah. but, uh, but, but no, actually, um, they have this whole rating system, which I think would be pretty difficult to fake. Um, you know, you'd have to have a lot of fake people going and reviewing you. And then, you know, it, it would be, you'd have to be a pretty good fiction writer, actually, <laughs> yeah, yeah, to yeah. fake a lot of reviews. So. Wow, that's cool. And, and and it's like, it's like markedly cheaper and it's probably a little bit more comfortable. And so, you know, if you get a good one, right? Yeah, yeah, it's it's cool. I mean, it was probably, you know, $50 less per night. For me to stay here. Well, and what and what are you doing there? Like, what are you doing in Boise? You there for a reading? Well, so I'm here for a reading. I'm reading at a place called Rediscovered Books, which is a great independent bookstore here. And um, I just did a, a different radio program this morning, um, which is um, Boise Public Radio, called Writer's Block. And um, and then I have a reading in Twin Falls, Idaho, on the fourth of August. Uh, so that, so, um, tomorrow, I'm, tomorrow night, I'm going to go see Gillian Welch. <laughs> so, so I'm, it's like a book tour and then I'm going to go see Gillian Welch and then I'm going to go be back on book tour and then I get to go home. Yeah, no, like I was going to say country music, uh, figures, uh, figures into your book. So you're clearly a fan. I am. Well, I'm a fan of certain, certain forms of country. You know, it's, um, I, I don't really like the very super produced, um, you know, kind of slick, uh, FM radio country that you get a lot of the time. I really like the old country music that's more, uh, rooted in, you know, Americana, um, you know, the old sort of Appalachian style music from the twenties and thirties. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that cause I have the exact same, uh, feeling about it. I think we have similar tastes. If you like Gillian Welch, then we're in the same ballpark. And especially like a lot of the stuff that's, uh, that's older. Um, you know, you listen to that, whether it's, uh, you know, uh, Jimmy Rogers or Ernest Tubb or any of these people, 
Um, and then you listen to, you listen to like uh, contemporary like pop country, and it feels so divorced from its roots, you know. Oh, it does, and it doesn't. It doesn't have that feeling of. Um, it. I mean, it doesn't. It doesn't feel authentic. Although I guess it's hard to, you know, to say well what is authenticity, but but it doesn't feel. Um, it doesn't feel authentic in that way, and then also it just sort of. Um, I don't know. I I I don't. Um, I, I just I just don't I don't like it. You know I don't know why. I guess I had I wish I had a better reason. <laughs> yeah, it just said, nah, it just doesn't sound as good. How's that? <laughs> it doesn't sound as good. Exactly. There's no yodeling. Right. There's no. Y- so how did you get into it? Like what was the what was your uh, point of entry for that? I think it was Hank Williams. He uh, you know and then Jimmy Rogers. I started listening to them. Um, I listened to mostly classical music as a kid, which was a little weird, and my friends teased me kind of mercilessly for it. And so then I ended up, uh, you know, deciding, wait, I have to have some music taste. And um, and this was in Seattle in 1989, 1990. So I started listening to, you know, bands like Tad and Green River and Mud Honey and... Uh, you know, near Nirvana and uh, all the bands that were local at that time and um, going going to their shows as much as they played all ages shows. And um, and so then so then I sort of had that in my background. And then because I had the, the rock, I really when I got to college, I was like, oh, I have to go and be part of the college radio station. And that just like opened up, blew my mind, you know, because here's this record library that at the time was, you know, I mean, 20,000, 30,000 records. And she just had, like, I had the, you know, three to 5 a.m. show <laughs> as a freshman. And so I just basically would just go through, get there at one o'clock and play music for four hours. It was just, uh, it was just terrific. I, that's how I just explored so much stuff. That sounds fun. You know, like I remember, like I, I, I feel bad about saying this, but I feel like, uh, you know, the, there was a period of my life where I was so, uh, immersed in music and was going to the record store regularly and was looking through the, like the used, uh, bins and like picking up old stuff and like taking chances on things that were, you know, just a couple of bucks. And, you know, it was so fun and, and I haven't been doing that. Like I sort of lost that. And I feel like, uh, I feel like that sucks. <laughs> yeah, no, I totally, I totally know what you mean. I mean, I felt, I felt that way too. I feel that way too because I, I you know, I miss the the like college radio thing where I, you know, I felt like every new band was sending in, you know, CDs to the radio station. They were arriving daily, and it seemed very exciting. And you know, and there was this element of discovery to it. And you know, your friends cared about what you listened to, and and everything that you listen to kind of meant something about you, you know, but that sort of disappears. I feel like I got older and now it's sort of like, well, well now I'm doing a lot of baby care. So it's like the babies don't really care. They just want to listen to Elmo, you know, again and again. Yeah. No, I have a, I have a two year old and she, like she is in like Elmo that like, I guess this is (laughs) the, 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 you know, the deepest part of her Elmo phase, but it's insane that, and, uh, and, uh, Caillou, uh, she's, Oh, the, the Caillou? Wait, what's Caillou? It's an annoying little cartoon. It's like a little boy in a cartoon. My wife and I both want to strangle this kid, but he's got this like really, 
like sing songy high pitched voice and you know but like you know our daughter loves it loves him you know so like what, what are you gonna do and like you know I, I gotta say I'm charmed uh, I watched a documentary on Elmo uh, which is actually totally worth watching just as like uh, you know on its own merits as a documentary it's fascinating but it's about Kevin Clash the guy who uh, you know voices uh, Elmo and is the puppeteer. And yeah, it's called, isn't it called being Elmo or something? Something like that. Oh, yeah. Well. I watched it on Netflix, but it was like fascinating. Uh, a, this guy's past. And then B, when you think about, and, and you know, this is probably boring for people who don't have kids. Cause it, I know it, it would bore me, uh, back in the day when I, <laughs> when I didn't have a kid, but you know, the, the truth is that this, you know, this puppet like controls the imagination of so many kids. And, um, you know, it's not like, we forced it on her. Like we just had Sesame street on and like, that's who she gravitated toward. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, oh, it's, oh, it's like a firecracker. I mean, it's, it is crazy. The explosion in their brains. Like for instance, actually I Skyped with my wife and the kids, I have twins. They're two years old and three months. And, uh, I Skyped with my wife today and you know, I, I'm on the computer and the whole time, all they're saying is Elmo, Elmo, Elmo. And I'm like, here's Papa. And I like tried to sing the Feist song because Feist does. Uh, oh, yeah, no. One, yeah, no, I know all the words. One, two, three, four, <laughs> counting to number four. Anyway, it's actually, uh, I think it's chickens walking across the floor, isn't it? Yeah, oh, that's, that's it. Yeah, that's it. Yeah. Chickens yeah, walk across. And... <laughs> Oh my god! Um, anyway, so I so I tried to sing it, and like that caught her attention for just a moment. But then it was, you know, once she realized it wasn't the actual video, she was just saying Elmo, Elmo, Elmo more and more. There is so, no, there is no substitute. Yeah, but I, but if if people don't have kids and they're listening, you know, it's sort of torture. The but if you have kids, you know, you know, you know, it's it's all about the Elmo. It's an empire. You know, this guy has built an, a vast empire of merchandise. A vast, a vast red fuzzy empire. <laughs> so uh, let me let me actually dial it back for a second. I want to talk about okay. class, classical music, just because you mentioned that you listened to this almost exclusively when you were in high school. Is that right? Yeah, I actually before um, even growing up. Um, you know, I well, I think there are a number of reasons why um, my my mom was a was a ballerina, um, and so I just grew up around that, around ballet, around classical music. She would take me to the orchestra and to the uh, opera and the ballet a lot when I was a little kid. And so there was that side of it. Um, my dad was also sort of a um, ballerina. You know. Oh, he was a ballerina as well. He was a beautiful, a beautiful male ballerina. <laughs> wait, actually, wait a minute. Do you call like are men who do ballet called ballerinas too, or no? They called ballerinas. Our, our ballerinos, I think, ballerinas. <laughs> yeah. Maybe. <laughs> I'm. Uh, maybe they're just ballerists. Yeah. I. I, uh, I don't know. I think the ballet dancers. I belly belly dips. Something like that. Um, yeah, I, he was. Though he was more, less of a ballerina and more of a sort of uh, conservative Christian, and so decried rock music as being sort of the, um, you know, uh, antichrist. Maybe I mean that's that's probably going way over the top. Actually, he was just very. He believed that rock and roll was responsible for the 
erosion of the moral fabric of uh, our, uh, you know, society. He, he, was like, and, he was essentially like John Lithgow in Footloose, right? In Footloose, totally. He was just like the guy in Footloose. That, that was him. In fact, John Lithgow was my father. You know? um, <laughs> right, you know. Well, you know, they, that actually, but, that, it's, I mean, it's kind of a, it's not a, a terrible comparison because John Lithgow did not like the rock and roll, but he also... Uh, was I think ultimately uh, warm-hearted. You know, he came around yeah. a little bit. Yeah, exactly. And my dad is a very warm-hearted, generous, generous guy. Um, so, but uh, but so I, I think that those two things sort of conspired to to make me, you know, be a very sweet and adorable young ten-year-old who listened to like Bach and Beethoven and Chopin, Debussy, and all these guys. And um, you know, I I. I uh, really loved them, and, uh, you know, that was my, I, I mean, like, I listened to the classical station, you know, on my Walkman at night kind of thing, so. I love it. I listen to it all day long, and uh, or at least I have been mm-hmm. lately, and, like, the thing about it, though, and I, I could say the same thing about jazz, and uh, I don't want to sound too precious about it, because I know it can be annoying uh, when, like, writers get together and start talking about jazz or something, but... Uh, you know, but it's just the, 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 the point I think is that it's kind of ambient music without singing. And so it's less distracting when I'm trying to do my work, you know, it functions as like a sound wall. Uh, yeah, that's, that's true. It's and it. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly it. It's a sound wall and it, it, um, you know, and it can, it can energize you. It can keep you focused. Um, you know, so I think it's good for writing if there aren't words. Otherwise I feel like, you know, if there are words, I just start thinking the words. Right. You yeah. know, I'm I'm so easily distracted. I need to give myself like you know as few outs as possible. Uh, yeah, I I was I was listening with uh, I mean I was living so this, my favorite story about that is I was living with a friend of mine uh, in California in the Bay Area in like uh, let's see it was probably '99 and um, right after we got out of school and um, he he was he was running a business from the house and I was trying to write a book. And, uh, so I was sitting at home and I had like for five weeks, I had the worst writer's block I've ever had. And then one day I was sitting there and I realized that he just had this booming baritone voice and it was like echoing throughout the house. And he was on the phone all day long because he's trying to get this startup going and talking with all these people. And I was just thinking his conversations and so i was just sitting there for hours at a time staring out into space thinking like well you know if the ipo is coming through then we're gonna make you know <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't know anyway yeah just you know it's like it's it's hard to it's hard to kind of block it all out and uh you know i think the music uh whatever it is whether it's ambient music and electronic and uh, or it's uh you know an, an orchestra um i think it can be uh helpful and a question right. I a question I have for you, if you were you know since uh, you know you were so into this stuff as a young person, and have probably listened to a lot more of it than I have uh, cumulatively over time, is can you you know can you listen to a piece of classical music and pick it out? Because when it comes to like jazz and classical music, like I, I you know I've listened to hours and hours and hours of this stuff, but I hate the fact that I can't listen to uh, you know a Coltrane record every time and just be like that's. That's John Coltrane. I mean, I can sometimes do it, but there are other times where I'll guess wrong, and it, it just drives me nuts that I can't isolate the sounds properly or, or remember, yeah. you know, that it's Bach instead of Beethoven, you know? Right. Yeah, you know, uh, I wish, God, I wish I could say yes. I have friends. I have a 
a, a few friends who were in orchestra in high school and they could totally do that. I mean, you know, they'll listen and they'll say, Oh yeah, it's, you know, Debussy, ha ha ha, you know, and they, but, uh, but like, I can't, I wish I could, I can't do it. Um, uh, you know, I, sometimes I can, I mean, I can tell, you know, if, if the composer is a romantic composer, I can say, well, you know, that's probably this person or this person, um, you know, some certain like, uh, you know, like Rachmaninoff is really distinctive because it's just so percussive and, and, um, you know, kind of wild. Um, and, uh, you know, there are some, I mean, certain, you know, certain composers are, they have signatures, but like, if you're, if you were like, well, can you tell me, you know, take, you know, can you separate like this Salieri from this Mozart? I would just have no idea, you know? Right, right. Well, I'm the same way. I'm the same way. So, um, so do you? Uh, let's let's see. When you were a kid, and uh, you know, you were growing up with this like ballerina mother and this conservative Christian father. Like, where was this taking place? This was in Seattle. Yeah, this was in Seattle, Washington. And uh, yeah, my dad was my dad. You know, was born in Egypt, and he was. Uh, they were Catholic, and so he was. Uh, you know, an Egyptian sort of Catholic. And, um, that, that's and not, is that not, that's I, not I, common? Is it? Is that <laughs> no? It also sounds like the punchline of something, but uh, but it's uh, I would say it's like um, yeah, no, it's it, there's a small percentage of uh, Egyptians who are Melkite Catholics, less than probably less than one percent. Wow. Okay. So he came, and then he came over here uh, from there as a Catholic, and in, in what year? He came over in 1946, and he, uh, you know the whole family came over. My uh, my aunt was uh, a war bride. She she met a young man who was sort of uh, working for Standard Oil and um, in Egypt, uh, working sort of as a, I guess working through the uh, army uh, for Standard Oil in, in Egypt, and they fell in love. It was kind of like a clandestine love affair. And then she moved with him. They got married, and she moved with him to California. And so then the next year, uh, my grandfather decided, well, we're going to pick up the whole family, and we're going to all move to California. And so they did. They got on a boat uh, in May of 1946, and they took the boat uh, to Italy and then to New York. And they they ended up they ended, they landed in New York. They had absolutely no money at all. They had spent all of their money to buy the passage uh, of, you know, across the ocean. They had no way of getting to California where my aunt uh, was living. And somebody on the boat was said, you know, you heard their story and was like, oh, come on, you have to come to our house in Manhattan. And they took them in, all six kids and the grandparents and my grandparents. And then they paid for their bus fare across the country. Oh. So they took the bus out. I know, right? Crazy, right? Crazy. <laughs> it's a crazy story. And, uh, and you know, it's just, I just think it's incredible that my grandfather basically decided, yes, I will go with my wife and my six children and we'll get on the boat and no, we don't have any money, but we'll figure it out when we get there. <laughs> yeah, that's incredibly ballsy, but it also makes me think that it was a different time in America. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, yes, it was. Yeah, it's like oh, if we go there, it'll work out. Like I, nowadays, I'm wondering if people would feel that way. <laughs> you know, like, I don't. Yeah, I doubt that they would. I mean, I, I think that it was, and uh, 
you know, it was a different. My dad, when he when he was in California in the forties and fifties, he would just drive up and down the highway when he had a couple hours, seeing if there were any stranded motorists who he could help. <laughs> <You know? laughs> what? <laughs> yeah, no, I know, right? Exactly, right? You know, so it's like so. He would, uh, you know, if somebody had, was having car trouble, he would pull up and say, you know, are you okay? And they, you know, oh, I've got a flat tire. Well, let me take you to the service station and drive him to the service station, get what he needed, you know, bring him back. And he just did this regularly. Oh, interesting. Well, what a nice guy, you know. <laughs> Seemed like a nice guy, right? Yeah. So, like, what was your uh, what was your upbringing like aside from uh, you know this classical music? I mean, and, and the fact that rock and roll was considered, um, you know, the the the, the uh, or part of the degeneration of our society. Right. Exactly. Um, well, you know, I um, I think that I think that I grew up with the, the Egyptian culture as present in my life as far as food is concerned. Um, you know, my um, on that side of the family, uh, the, they spoke French at home, so uh, there was a lot of French being spoken at, in the house um, with my my dad and my grandparents. And my mom is my mom was um, was is Eastern European. She was born in Latvia, and so she um, she really wanted me to um, to preserve that cultural tradition. So. I went to Latvian Saturday school every every week for the first uh, for the first sixteen years of my life, basically from the time I was three to the time I was sixteen to learn the Latvian language. And uh, I was going to say, and, what is what is Latvian Saturday school? That's just you learning Latvian. Is that it? That's just, that's just me learning Latvian. Me learning Latvian with all the other you know Latvian kids in Seattle. Um, so. It, it was uh, it, that was an interesting experience. Um, so you know, uh, I speak the extremely useful language of Latvian now. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, do you speak do you speak French too? Uh, I, I yeah, I mean yeah, it's pretty good. I mean it's it's not it's not great, but it's um, it's decent. I mean I can understand a lot more because it was sort of a defense mechanism because my my parents, my mom also speaks it, and so they would speak in French in order to, uh, to stop me from, or so that I wouldn't understand. So, so I would, I learned French to understand what they, why, what they were saying about me and how they were planning to punish me. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's gotta be, that does add a dimension, you know, to the whole thing when your parents can speak a language that you don't understand. Yes. And it, um, they can, they can communicate secretly behind your back it's very frustrating so you want to figure it out so now was it just you were you the only child or were there siblings or anything well i have older half brothers and sisters so but as far as of my parents i'm the only child okay okay and then were you so i've talked to uh, several writers who are like only children on this show uh, or essentially i guess functionally only children i'm assuming if your uh, half siblings were uh, considerably older they were out of the house by the time you were Five or six, or is that correct, or no? Yes, yeah, that's totally true. Okay, so like you spent most of your childhood at home on your own uh, with your folks, and so um, do you feel like that was a contributing factor to you becoming a writer? Do you think that that made you more interior? Uh, do you think that it you know drove you to books because you needed to find ways to entertain yourself without the presence of siblings around who were close in age? 
Yeah, I think absolutely. I mean, I think that's completely a, a huge part of it. Um, I think that that, that, you know, you also, you spend a lot of time sort of alone as an only child and, you know, solitariness is a very important thing for a writer. You have to, you obviously have to be in solitude in order to produce your work. So I think that you learn those habits. If you learn those habits really young, then it feels more natural. You know, it feels more comfortable. Um, you know, I definitely, I mean, I, I definitely feel I'm just fine alone in my apartment above the garage in Boise, Idaho. You know, I'm, I'm not, I don't have any need for, for any, any, social interaction yeah, you're, like, you're, you're right at you're right at home in a stranger's garage apartment you could care less yes totally totally i'm just like i'm by myself and it's uh it's perfect that way well no and, you know it brings up an interesting question uh which is you know obviously writers have to be able to endure solitude uh you know in order to do what they do and you know i think that there is it seems a lot you know it seems likely that there's uh, a tendency toward that naturally in people who wind up doing this work. You know, if you, if you lean towards writing or if you have that calling or however you want to put it, um, you also have, uh, like almost a need for solitude. Like, I feel like that, like I need to go have that time to just read and just, you know, sit in quiet. <laughs> um, yeah, absolutely. But, and it's so, I, I totally agree. I think you're exactly right. Okay. So my, here's my question is that, do you think it's, do you think there are writers out there who, really don't have that tendency and let's just assume that it's somehow genetic uh you know but they like to, <laughs> they they want to write and so they can teach themselves to endure the solitude do you know what i'm saying like i, I yeah maybe it's sure a, maybe it's a silly question but i just wonder if it's something that like you can practice and get better at even if you don't have the natural disposition for it or if it's something that you have to sort of like you know like a fish to water be ready for from the beginning well i think that I've known, uh, you know, writers who are very uh, outgoing. You know, they're sort of, um, they are, uh, you know, really social creatures, and they thrive off of that social interaction. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's definitely writers who I know who are like that. Um, and I think that what you say is probably true. They probably, you know, they've they've taught themselves to be, uh, alone or to be, to have that, uh, sort of solitude of mind that's necessary for producing work on the page. Um, I don't know. I, I that's an interesting idea. I, I, you know, you, you said that you're that way too. You are, you need that space also. I, I need it. I think I, I think I'm kind of a split personality cause I, you know, I need, uh, and really enjoy the time, uh, at my desk alone doing my work or reading or whatever it is. But I also, uh, I get energy from being around people and I feel like if I don't do that, which I sometimes don't because, you know, the nature of what we do is solitary. Uh, I feel like there's a, an important part of me that sort of atrophies. And when I do get a chance to go out and be around, uh, friends, it's, it's like a relief and, and I get a lot from it. So I think like for me to be healthy, like I, I don't think I could ever, uh, live like a hermit, you know, and be out in the, sure. middle, be out in the middle of the woods totally by myself. I don't think that would be good for me over the long haul, but um, you know, if I can have like, I'll, I'll work in no play. Yeah. Yeah. It'd make me crazy. But I think five or six hours a day, uh, of work, uh, in that like, kind of that solitary cocoon and then getting out and being among people would probably be the best formula for me. 
Yeah. You know, I think that, uh, I mean, I wonder if, um, yeah, I mean, I think that that, that, that solitude is so, is, is something that is good in, in, for me anyway, in measure, like, you know, it's like uh, a flavoring. Uh, now I'm, I can't, you have to cut that last part out. I'm trying to come up with a simile. And so I can't, I can't, I can't think of a good simile. It's embarrassing not to be able to think of a good simile. That happens all the time when I'm teaching, you know, it's like, uh, if, you know, you pause and you come to the point where if you had the great simile, it would be the triumphant moment of, you know, pedagogical, triumphant pedagogical moment. And then, uh, but then you just don't have it. Words fail. Words fail. Words fail. So sad. So it would, solitude is like the salt in this bra. I don't know. <laughs> well, but you know, you say, but you mentioned teaching, and I think teaching sort of uh, is a great, I mean, there's a reason why, in addition to the the uh, the timing of the job being, uh, compliment, you know, it complements the writing life well. You can go teach a class for two hours. You can grade papers late at night. You can do... Uh, right. your, your writing work in the morning before you go off to teach, all that kind of stuff. But it also seems to perform the kind of function that we're talking about where let's say you get up in the morning and you do your writing work for five hours and then uh, you go teach and you're in a room full of students. You know, you sort of get, right. your, you sort of get your social fix that way as opposed to, uh, you know. Right, and it, which is a, it's, a perform- it's a performance, you know. It is a performance. Um, you know, it's definitely when you're teaching, you are not only uh Putting, presenting ideas, um, you're also sort of performing them in a way. Well, and, you know, I, that's the way, because I, I taught for five years and I felt similarly, you know, like you, you have to be up there and you have to make it entertaining. Otherwise, you're not going to engage your audience. And, mm-hmm. you know, who was I listening to or who was I reading? I think it might have been Alain de Baton, uh, but he was talking about, uh, you know, because he wrote a book called Religion for Atheists that I think we featured on The Nervous Breakdown. And, you know, it's all about, it's not, it's not in the same vein as like, um, you know, God is not great or the Richard Dawkins books in that it, it looks to religion and says, you know, I don't necessarily believe in this, but I think there are some things that we can steal. And one of the things that he steals, uh, or he thinks that the secular world should steal is the theatricality, the performance aspect, uh, you know, and I think that can apply because, uh, you know, universities are sort of like the the church of the secular world, or at least they used to be, or, um, that if there was more, yeah, I, more of a performative, um, you know, approach to it, they would be more effective in getting. Huh, that's interesting. You mean, so the, the ritual of class, you mean sort of like, uh, if class were more like, uh, were more like a religious ritual, then it would be more effective maybe or something like that. Well, I mean, I don't know necessarily. I mean, I think there's certain, maybe there would be, could be like a ritual, like the repetition of certain things, uh, but sure. I think I think what he's driving at is just the the actual teaching performance, like making it, um, you know, making the oratory more effective. And then also, um, you know, another thing that that I think he said that really struck me was that the architectural space, uh, you know, can also uh, lend itself to a more profound experience. So if you think about most university classrooms, they're so depressing and fluorescently lit and there's Oh, they're horrible. Yeah, you know, they yeah. And they smell and there's like, you know, stains on those <laughs> like tiles in the ceiling. And so, you know, if if we got a little bit more inspired with our architecture and you put students in there to learn, it's not that you're tricking them, uh, but you might be tricking them a bit into learning. You know, the learning itself is authentic, but it's like why not set this up so it can be more effective and why not when you're standing up there as the uh, instructor uh, why not have done the preparation so that when you go to talk, um, you know, you can yeah. you can deliver in a way that's not totally boring. <laughs> right. 
Well, the thing, well, the thing that actually that happens to me too, though, that would sort of stand in the way of that a little bit is that, um, so I sometimes struggle to complete my sentences because I get really excited. And so then I get onto the next thing. So I'm thinking, you know, Oh, but you know, oh, I'm going to say this and this and this. And then, so then I get halfway through the first thought and then I start the second thought. And then it, you know, you sort of have to say, wait a minute, take a deep breath, go back, you know, uh, you know, say, say what you were about to say, and then you can say the next thing. I mean, it, it, it's, it's interesting. I actually even write that way sometimes, you know, not obviously with my second draft, but when, with the first draft, I often have sentences that are unfinished just in the par- in the body of the paragraph. And then I go back and I find them later, you know, so, Oh, it's just, I didn't, I didn't finish it. <laughs> so, do, but do you, so do you, it sounds like then you allow yourself in the early draft, the first draft to, to just go, like, are you writing a first draft quickly with uh, like that kind of propulsive energy and not second guessing yourself very much? Yeah, I am. Well, I, yeah, you know, I actually, so I use a wireless keyboard and so I sit um, somewhere where I can't see the, the monitor at all. And so that I don't censor myself at all. So I'll, what I'll do is I'll just, I'll, I'll just be able to write, you know, I'm sitting and I'm looking at uh, the wall or at like a, a bunch of books or out the window at that tree and I'm typing and I don't really know exactly what I'm rendering on the, on the screen. It's really great. I love the Apple wireless keyboard. Wow, Earlier, that is super interesting. I've never heard of anybody doing that. Uh, I'm sure there are uh, some people, but I've never heard of that. That 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 makes sense if you're trying to be um, permissive, you know, and not let yourself get bogged yeah. down in revision, you know. And I, uh, you know, I'm sort of the opposite, um, you know, like in in that. I go over what I'm writing in the first draft, like obsessively, and I'm trying to get, and I, you know, to be fair to myself, I've done this ever since I was a kid. I never wrote first drafts. I always wrote one draft, but I just like really obsessively revised it as I went, you know what I'm saying? And it was usually a function of waiting until the last minute and then finally doing it. But, um, right, you know, I, I sometimes worry, uh, like I think I was just talking to Sheila Hetty, uh, in an episode not too long ago and she sort of does, uh, what you do, or she tries to preserve that like first draft in case there's something really vital in it and doesn't let herself kind of like keep erasing and going over stuff because yeah, uh, she's concerned that she might lose something. And, uh, I'm concerned that maybe I'm losing stuff. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you know, I mean, I, I, I yeah, because th- that's the tricky thing about the, you know, wonderful technology that is the word processor. While it does let you move sections around and, you know, search to make sure you don't use the word glimmer 14 times in five pages, um, you know, you, you lose something. Something is erased. There's a, um, there's a possibility for, you know, you know, disappearing stuff that maybe it was you know, very strong, but, but I don't know that, you know, if it's, if it's working for you, you know, it's such a personal and idiosyncratic thing. If it's working for you, you know, then it is, it's probably is, is it's working. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the thing. I think the tension that I'm trying to resolve within myself is like, uh, you know, it's the two polarities. It's trying to be permissive and allow yourself the freedom to make mistakes on the one hand, but on the other hand, trying to do your very best. And so, I think I, I understand that there's going to be multiple drafts no matter what, but I'm just trying to get the first draft as good as I can get it. Like, why not try right. is the way I sort of think of it. Like, why – if I start to permit myself too much to write uh, a shitty first draft, 
then right. what, what happens is that I wind up writing lazily. Do you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, no, I totally get that. That makes sense. I mean, I think that I think that it's all about balance, and like you said, between those two poles, you know, you're trying to sort of um, make find the conditions that will give you the best work. Right. So, what are the conditions that give you the best work aside from having this wireless keyboard and no visual uh, read on your monitor? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think that. Uh, well, right now, I'm just like time. I want time desperately because the. You know, the kids are like running around at all hours and we weren't really sleeping for a while. So that was exciting. Um, I, you know, I, I'd love time. I think it's not that different from, from most writers. I, I, you know, I would, I would, uh, actually, if you know, if you know of anybody who wants to just like, uh, you know, hand out, say, uh, you know, a, a beach house somewhere with, uh, maybe, you know, just two or three bedrooms, um, overlooking the ocean. Uh, so I think that would, I would be able to produce my best work in like a nice little beach house. Yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> I know. You know, I, I, no, I really like, um, I really like the wireless keyboard and I like just a, a long stretch of time because I think that, you know, you don't, often you don't do your best work right away. You have all of this static in your brain that's telling you, you have 65 emails that you have to send and, you know, two, three people to call back and, you know, you're thinking about everything that happened that day and the previous day. And, and so it just takes a while to sort of sink into the trance of it. You know, you're, you have to sort of, um, get into the place where the best writing comes from. Often I find that it takes a couple hours for me to do that. And then, you know, then you get to the point where, you've been working for two hours and suddenly and you look up and you realize it's two hours later. That's the thing. That's a great, that's a great feeling. You know, that's when it feels really awesome. And it just like, I think that's the drug of it that you get hooked on because you, you just are able to retreat into your imagination and live purely there that's right. a really right. amazing no, thing. And it, yeah, and it's and it's funny to hear you talk about that, like you know, two hour dicking around period that I I, I, right. I seem to go through every time I try to write. You know, if I have the time. Uh, right. Yeah. There, there are times where I'll have such a compressed window that it forces me to be more disciplined than that. But like, I found myself kind of uh, you know criticizing my behavior when I do that because it's like, why can't you just sit down and go to work? Like, why can't you just sit down and do it? Why do you need uh, to re- you know, to read thirty pages of this, or like go check your right. email. Why do you need to do all these things before you? Why can... are you such a Why are you such a bastard, Paul? Like, <laughs> why? What? Come on, come on, come and, on, Paul. But no, but I'm starting to, I, you know, I'm starting to believe that maybe that's just part of it for me. Like maybe I do just need to go through that and sit there for two hours and sort of twiddle my thumbs and um, get myself situated. You know, like I think it's right. And the reason I say that is because I've been doing it for so long. A and then B. Uh, I, I think almost every writer is like that, and and not almost not not just every writer either, but I think people who paint, anybody who makes art in a solitary way, probably has a similar situation a lot of the time where you can't you can't creative just, work. Yeah, you you can't just like walk. In. I mean, unless you're really feeling it, you can't just walk in, sit down, and go. Like uh, you know, or, or maybe you can, and I just don't know how to do that yet. You know. Well, I think I, I, yeah, I don't know anybody who is so incredibly talented that they can just turn it on and off at a moment's notice. I mean, that's, that would be kind of 
amazing if they were. I, I also feel like it maybe it's a sign if you were able to do that, that you're too uh, deeply in your own style. Does that make sense? You've, you're, you're sort of, you're, you've, you're becoming an imitation of yourself or something. I immediately thought of Jackson Pollock walking into the studio and just scattering paint on the, you know, canvas you know, towards in the later years. But I think that, you know, I, 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 I think that if you thought of, if you, you know, the way that he got to that point was through, you know, intense, intense work, uh, over many years, sort of, you know, doing all that stuff, sinking into the, into the style. Um, you know, yeah. Yeah. I, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'm sure there are people who have discipline and I think there are days where I'm better at it than others, but, Generally speaking, I just need to warm up a little bit. And, you know, it's kind of like a, an athlete. Everyone's got to, you got to stretch out a little bit. You know? Yeah, stretch out the writing muscles, exactly. Read the news or something. So right. um, talk to me about your, like the like the origins of your writing life. Like, was this, a, were you like a writer as a kid? Well, like, I'm, I'm picturing you sitting at home in Seattle in your like quiet room, like listening to Beethoven. <laughs> like a little, right, listening to Beethoven and like a little Ponzi young man, um, you know, <laughs> reading classical poetry and, you know, uh, you know, mother, you know, I don't know. Um, <laughs> please another, I would love another scone. Tea. <laughs> I don't know why I suddenly had a British accent as a teenager, but, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, uh, well, I started, I, writing's all I ever wanted to do, man. I don't know. I didn't ever want to do anything else. I mean, I, I did, sure. I guess I did want to be a professional baseball player also, but, um, but, uh, that didn't work out. So, uh, I just, I, I had an older brother who, um, who, uh, was a, a poet, is a poet. Um, one of his poems is in Evil Knievel Days, um, the novel, uh, and, uh, that just came out. And, um, and, you know, he, uh, he was a big inspiration to me. He, uh, he made his own poetry chapbooks. And, and as a kid, I just thought that was so cool. And, you know, I, I wanted to emulate him. And so I started making my own poetry chapbooks and it's kind of cute, you know, in a kind of sweet way. Uh, and, um, you know, and, I, I don't know. I just, I always wanted to write. And then I had the luck. I had the good luck of at my, uh, horrendous giant public high school. Um, I had the good luck of getting a terrific creative writing teacher in 10th grade, you know, and I was totally messed up and, um, How so? you know, not, Oh, I was not doing well in school. I was, um, you know, I, it was not, it wasn't that I was, um, I was actually not, I mean, not in the standard ways, like I wasn't doing drugs or anything, or I was just like, it's actually really, it's like incredibly embarrassing to, to describe what, why I was having such problems at school. But, um, <laughs> but, uh, 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 I, like, I, this is, this is sound so, like, I can't believe it. I can't, I, I'm on, on this, on the, you know, the other people podcast and, uh, he, and like, what do I talk about? Well, I listen to a lot of classical music, like, you know, like I sound, I sound so like uh, wildly pretentious or something, but, um, uh, so I had, so basically like I had this giant existential crisis when I was that age and I, you know, probably read, I read like all of the, the nihilists or whatever. And, um, 
And I just, I just was like, well, if there's no God, then there's no point. And I'm, you know, I'm, I'm there's no point to life. And why am I doing anything? And I'm not going to do my homework anyway, <laughs> you know? And, um, you know, and uh, so I just was like bailing out of school. And um, were, you, were you were you like dressing in all black and stuff? Is that because? Yeah. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. Yeah, totally. No. And I was like, and uh, and I was acting out in classes and doing all kinds of crazy shit because I was like trying to, um, you know, uh, I don't know, prove that I didn't care about anything. And uh, and so so um, so I but I had so I I took this creative writing class with this. Um, guy Harris Levinson, and he was just like, "Okay, you know, you're going to be a writer. You're, you're, you know, you're talented, and uh, you, you know, you have to have to do this." And um, you know, it just had a huge impact on me. And and uh, and he would read all my writing and give it back to me with you know pages of comments. And you know, he really just like was a great, a terrific teacher. You know, I was very very lucky in that regard. And uh, so yeah. So that's I, so I just that's all I all I ever wanted to wanted to do. Wow, that's interesting. It's interesting to hear. I mean, I feel like uh, I didn't have like maybe a, a teacher or, or like an experience that was quite so profound, but I do remember teachers telling me that I was good at writing, and it's amazing how much uh, currency that has with a young person. You know, you remember it uh, when somebody tells you. Oh yeah, totally. Somebody tells me I'm good at something. I'm like, oh really? <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I know, right? Exactly. Because you're trying, right? Exactly. Because you're trying so desperately to be anything at all, you know, and much less you're good at something. Oh my God, that's. So it's so cool to actually hear that from somebody, you know. Well, and I, uh, I don't even know if you like. I don't even know if I necessarily responded that way, uh, even internally back then. Like, I don't even know if I got excited about it, but I definitely remembered it. So it was like this kind of right. like, you know, that that seems to me like closer to the truth. Like that adolescent way of being like, oh yeah, whatever, and then like not even yeah. allow, not even allowing yourself to be privately excited, but but remembering, you know. That's totally. You know, that's when you say it. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's totally like. Oh yeah. Oh, okay. Oh, thanks. <laughs> no, I'm going to file that one away until I die. You know, and like, oh, <laughs> and like remember it, remember it fondly later, like wistfully. Right. right exactly. Right. If only that happened more, but at the time, no reaction. <laughs> right, right. So, so then, what about? I mean, if you were failing out of school, did you turn it around? And obviously, you went on to get uh, your degree. <laughs> I did, you know, I did, I, um, I, I did, I turned it around my senior year. I was actually, so I, um, you know, I was like, I was academically ineligible for baseball and all this stuff. And, and then uh, again, more embarrassing stuff to talk about, but, uh, but then I, I, yeah, I turned it around and I graduated and, um, I, you know, I went to college and et cetera, et cetera. Where'd you go to school? Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I went to Middlebury College in Vermont, but um, I, I'm convinced that the, I got into Middlebury on this thing called the FEB program, which is they admit a hundred, about a hundred students every February that they wouldn't be able to admit otherwise. And um, so I, uh, you know, I, I my sister had gone there, and I'm I'm convinced that she like secretly lobbied the guy who was reading the applications to like give my application of another look. Um, and that somehow I got in because of that, but uh, I don't know how I got in, but I got in. So, so I went there and and uh, you know spent four years in rural Vermont. And how was that? Was that I mean, were you uh, were you off the charts, going crazy, or were you pretty pretty devoted student? 
dude, it was cold. It was really cold. Um, no, I, you know, um, I, I was, I was a good student. I, I, fortunately I met, um, Jay Perini, who was a really, uh, terrific writer and a great, uh, you know, a great role model in a, in many ways. <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, I, you know, he was really the first actual writer who I met, you know, and, uh, and so he was very helpful and like helped me out in my, with my work and, I had another great teacher in Ron Powers, the the writer and uh, the journalist, and uh, a guy named Bob Buckeye, who was a really great teacher as well. So, so yeah, you know, I I I had really excellent teachers when I was, you know, fairly young, which I'm very lucky for. Okay, and then what about like early professional experiences? Like, how did you how did you navigate from? Uh, you know, having a, like a strong interest in creative writing as a student to getting yourself published. Yes. Uh, it's uh, it, it, like, I feel like everybody has a different story. It's totally, um, it's completely, there's no map, you know, there's no map for that territory. Um, I think everybody has a different story. My story was strange um, it, uh, in that. So I had, so, so what happened? I, let's see, I, um, my, I, I wrote a novel when I was still in school and then, and I showed it to Jay, my advisor. And he said, you know, I would pass this along to my agent, but, um, but I don't, you know, I don't know. It's, I'm not sure. And he said, why don't you think about a, a nonfiction book proposal? So I wrote, I wrote, so I was like, okay, about what? And he said, well, I don't know. You, you know, you're Latvian. What's going on in Latvia right now? And I said, okay. So I, so I wrote this like 80 page nonfiction book proposal, put it together with the novel and stuck it in the mail. And, um, which seems very old fashioned now. And, uh, and Jay wrote a letter recommending me to, to her. Uh, and I went and she read it and she told me the novel was terrible <laughs> and that I really needed to learn how to write dialogue and I needed to learn how to write plot. But, um, but that the nonfiction book proposal was, uh, great and that she wanted to send it around. So she sent it around to a bunch of different places and, um, they, uh, I got some really terrific rejection letters from places like Norton and stuff. And so it was like, it sort of, it didn't get bought, but it, it justified, I think, her continuing to work with me. And, um, and so then I, you know, I continue, I tried another, I tried to write a, another more experimental novel then after that. And she didn't really like that either. And, uh, I ended up leaving that agency, and signing with my current agent, Renee Zuckerbrot. Um, and, uh, you know, I thought, so, so that sort of, it went from there. Um, Renee saw a tiny little story of mine in a, in a magazine called book magazine. Um, and, uh, she got in touch with me and asked me if I had an agent and I said, no. And, uh, you know, so that it and sort of went from there. Um, so, uh, how, you know, I, how did you, how did you handle the rejection uh, the, the, uh, the, like throughout the, throughout the process, you know, you obviously, every writer has to go through a lot of it. Like, how did it affect you? Were you too young to know the difference or was like, were you devastated or what? They're all the rejection. Um, well, you know, um, yeah, I mean, I think that 
I think that with the book proposal, I just had no idea what the fuck was going on. Like, I mean, honestly, like, it's like, okay, it's going to Norton, it's going to Norton and Penguin and, you know, and, you know, Scribner and Harper, you know, it's like, I'm sort of like Random House, you know. I'm like, okay, let's go. And then I'm getting these rejection letters back. And I just thought, oh, well, you know, this is normal. This is what everybody's doing when they're 23 years old, you know. And um, and uh, so, but, like, you know, I, I, but then with the fiction, like, you, you know, I wrote, I wrote, um, I wrote, uh, I wrote three failed novels. And then the fourth one, Red Weather, um, was turned down, like, you know, 18 times or something like that, uh, before, uh, Random House, before she or her fought it. Um, and you know, it was, it was, it was very hard. It was extremely hard. I, um, so wait, you know, so I mean, wait, let I, me stop you. Let me stop you. You had three failed novels and then Red Weather was your fourth and you, yeah, went, Red and, you went, and you went through 18 or something, uh, rejections before it finally got picked up. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. I don't know if I should even say that, but uh, yes, I did. Yeah, and uh, and it was um, yeah, it was turned the book. The book was turned down by you know eighteen different people, and then it was a sort of thing where my agent didn't really. I don't think I think she was like, oh, I have this book that I love, and uh, you know I, but I can't find a home for it. And um, she then she then um, found out. You know, she said, well, someone suggested that she send it to Sharehart. And, uh, you know, Shay, um, fortunately Shay really loved it. She loved it. She had her, her assistant at the time read it first and really loved it and just got it, you know, totally got it. And then, um, passed it along to Shay and Shay, you know, took a chance on, you know, nobody, you know, nobody had really heard of me. I'd published short stories and, and whatnot, but, um, but no, obviously no novel. Okay, so to take take us inside of uh, like the moment when you find out, you know, you're like I'm, I'm oh. assuming I'm assuming there must have been considerable oh, yeah. considerable dread as you went through this process. That's why I asked you earlier. You know, you you got already been through this three times. You're on your fourth. You're thinking this has got to be it. This has got to work. I, and then I wish I could. I wish I could tell the whole story. I just I don't know if I'm totally prepared to tell the whole story. But it was a really it was a very rough time in my life. Um, and. Uh, and I, it had been turned down a bunch of times. I mean, I kind of had a, a bit of a, you know, a bit of a breakdown kind of thing, you know, uh, and I'm fine saying that. And, uh, and I had, um, I, it had gone out so many times I'd basically given up on it. And I was visiting a friend of mine, um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, I woke up in the morning and I was a little hungover <laughs> and I walked over to the computer and I opened the computer. And I checked my email and then, so I guess this was 2004 and, um, and, uh, uh, there was just an email that said red weather offer <laughs> the subject line. Um, and, uh, I, I just like, my, I, I just lost it. I mean, I lost it. It was just, it was insane. I just, it's just like, I, I had never, I mean, and you know, and, so I was all alone in the apartment. She was a teacher and she had already gone to work. And so I was all alone in the apartment and I was just like madly running back and forth in the upstairs of this little apartment. And like, it was in New Hampshire in the middle of winter. And, uh, you know, I ran outside and I was like, you know, it's just like, it was every, 
you know, cliche you could imagine. It was just, it was the greatest feeling. It was really just a, an incredible, you know, amazing feeling. So and it's just, you were literally, and, you were literally like, like running outside in the snow by yourself. Is yes. I was totally running outside in the snow by myself. I didn't know what to do. I was like, I was like laughing maniacally. I mean, everyone who was walking by must have thought I was just like the craziest of the crazy people in the town of, you know, uh, in Lake Winnipesaukee. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you, you go through, I mean, just to go to, to go through three, to just the process of writing a book, is so difficult yeah. and then to go through the sales process and not have it work out and then to be on the fourth try like i get it man you know what i'm saying i think any writer <laughs> any any writer who's done this for any you know uh, decent amount of time would understand you know that it's going to be it's like so emotionally taxing just to get the book yeah. finished period but then i find that the uh the sales process uh is the most uncomfortable part of it because there's not much you can do to control the situation if anything you just have to sort of sit there and wait for the verdict on this thing that you uh, you know, bled to create, you know, and it's, yeah, exactly. No, that's exactly it. And you're, and you're, you know, and it's, and it's just so personal. It feels, it's like, not only is it, I mean, and this is for me, every writer obviously isn't like this, but, but for me, it's so deeply personal, you know, and it's like, and you, you know, you, um, you've given so much to that book and then it's being, you know, people are saying, I just didn't fall in love with it. Really what they're saying is I just didn't fall in love with you. Right. (laughs) Well, no, okay. But let's flip this then because this is like, tell me if you had this experience, like you go through all these trials and tribulations, um, all these emotional difficulties. And then finally, um, and forgive me, I'm forgetting the name of the editor that bought it, but Shay. Shay. Yeah. Finally, Shay says, yes, I did fall in love with it. Did you feel like, like I remember, like even when, like when my agent signed me, my editor, I felt love for them. I was like, I love you, yeah. like, and I and I think oh. I always will. I always will because you know when you're out on the street and nobody gives uh, a shit about you, and then suddenly right. they say, you know, you know, we're gonna we're gonna support you. We believe in you. It's a uh, it's a confidence and and a um, like a lifeline of some sort. You know that you just can never ever fully repay. Oh my God. No, totally. I feel, I felt that way. I feel that way about Shay. I mean, I just think that the fact that she took this risk on me and, you know, um, you know, liked my voice and liked the book as much as she did love the book, you know, it just, it is, I think it's, um, you know, it's one of the luckiest things that has ever happened to me. So, so yeah, it's a, you, yeah, it's like just love, just like, <laughs> you know, like, it's kind of absurd, it's absurd in a way, but like, but, uh, but totally, I totally get that. It's like the kind of love that has you like carving her name into a tree, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly, right, exactly. Uh, so, so let know. me tell, before I let you go, like, what is next for you? You're obviously out supporting this book and you're doing press and you're doing book tour and everything, but are you, are you, uh, working on something else? Do you have another thing in the works or is it something that you're, waiting to find time to do? Well, I'm, I'm really, I'm excited about a couple of different things. Um, I, I have a, um, an essay that's coming out in Granta. It's going to be on the Granta online, uh, about a trip that I took to Egypt with my dad in 2011 in March after the revolution. And, um, so it's, I think it's a, a fun, fun, it's an interesting essay. Um, so I was, I'm thinking about that and seeing if, if there's a way to make it into something longer. Um, so, and then I'm, I'm working on a, I'm working on a 
sort of longer project, I guess, a, another novel right now um, that, you know, um, but it's sort of in the early stages. And it's been tough. I mean, I haven't, you know, I, it's, I basically haven't worked on writing at all for about two months now. Um, I would say maybe two and a half months uh, since the semester ended. It's just been like all book all the time, trying to write essays to support it or or do any kind of, um, you know, anything that can help help it make its way through the world. Because I'm conscious of, you know, this fact that, uh, you know, Red Weather, it's didn't sell terribly well. And, you know, if you, you know, book, you know, your, your book scan numbers follow you everywhere now. And they're, they're available for editors that with just a, a single click of their mouse. So, um, and let, you know, let, let if, me just say, let me just say, like, I understand the bottom line nature of that, but especially for somebody yeah. who's, you know, who hasn't written a ton of books yet and who's early in their career, right. that's bullshit. You know, like for God's sakes, you know, it's like, it's, there's enough stuff competing out there just because somebody doesn't pop, um, immediately. Like, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't want to sound, I don't want to sound too bitter, but I, th- I just think that like, you know, you have to be able to develop writers and it's like. I don't know. I, wish I, I there, agree. I wish there were more of that. I think that, that some people feel that way, but it would be nice if somebody's uh, faith in, in someone's ability carried over and they just said, look, we're going to build it and you just go right. <laughs> but I guess that might be uh, I mean, too I, idealistic for the times. Well, I would, God, I would love that. I mean, you know, I'm so happy at Crown. I can't, you know, it's like been such a great experience for me over there. So I don't know. Um, you know, I, who knows? Um, I, you know, I am, I am conscious that like, I, I want to do everything I can. <laughs> yeah, no, but, ab- uh, and absolutely. Yeah. Like, you know, like I, I get, I get that, you know, yeah. you, you have to go to bat for the book and you have to try your, your best to, um, get the right. word out and do everything you can. But it's like, uh, it's just, there's so much pressure anyway, you know, not only in, in writing, but in life. And it's like, my God, you know, like, <laughs> Uh, right, exactly. Right, exactly. Yeah, I, yeah, I don't want to have like a you know a coronary before the age of forty. <laughs> that would be, that's my goal too. I'm thir- I just turned thirty seven, so I've got three years to try to pull it off. <laughs> knock on wood. Uh, yeah. <laughs> knock on wood. Knock on wood. <laughs> um, uh, listen, Pauls, I'll tell you, it's been fun talking with you, and yeah. uh, I congratulate you on the uh, on the book. I hope it. I hope it. Uh, you know, moves a bunch of copies, and I hope that. Um, <laughs> You know, you're able to get some sleep with those twins and, and you know, get back to work once all this, uh, this publicity cycle dies down. Well, thank you so much. All right, you guys, there you go. That is the program. That is Paul's Tatongi. Go get his book. It is called Evil Knievel Days. It is available now from Crown. You can find him on the web at paulstatongi.wordpress.com. He's on the Facebook, and his Twitter handle is ptatongi. This show has a website. It's otherpeoplepod.com. It has a Twitter feed, at otherpeoplepod. I have a Twitter feed, at Brad Listy. If you would like to read the tweeting I do on the side, the show has a Facebook presence, and if you want to email me, the address is letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Thank you to Kill Rockstars for all the great music. As always, be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Don't forget to, dis- uh, to subscribe to this program if you haven't done that already. It is available for free at iTunes and at Stitcher, and otherwise, uh, Israel. That's really what's on my brain now. It's probably going to be that way for the next couple of weeks. I won't be able to think about anything else. I don't know what to expect. I don't know what's going to happen, but I know that it's going to be interesting and uh, probably a little bit strange. And uh, I don't know who I'm going to meet. I don't know what I'm going to eat. I don't even know where I'm staying yet. Everything's up in the air. 
And uh, I like it that way. That excites me. Please remember that Georgia O'Keeffe died blind and that Bertrand Russell was so physically inept, he never even learned how to make a pot of tea. That is it for now. Uh, I'm going to go off into the rest of my evening. Uh, I'm going to have a drink with a friend, actually, and I'm going to talk about Israel and probably try to imagine it. And I'm going to worry about my passport and the fact that I'm flying home on September 11th from Israel. Did I mention that? That's right. That's happening. Tel Aviv to Los Angeles on 9-11. What could go wrong?